Hello, Isla Vista listeners. You're tuned in to KCSB FM 91.9 in Santa Barbara. I'm Ashley Rush with KCSB News. And I'm Sindhu Anandavail with The Daily Nexus. Tonight, we bring you episode two in our series, Unmasking Isla Vista, a COVID-19 community archive, an exploration of how COVID-19 has impacted the different corners of Isla Vista life over the past year and a half. Thanks for supporting KCSB News' first collaborative reporting project with our neighbors at The Daily Nexus, UCSB's independent, student-run newspaper. And remember, for full-length articles and archived episodes, visit dailynexus.com or kcsb.org. So tonight's episode is part two in our series, University and Students. As our listeners know, any sense of normalcy in Isla Vista during the pandemic was completely thrown out the window. From dealing with complicated lease agreements to balancing online academics, students have been overwhelmed with much more than what would be expected of an ordinary college experience. Tonight, we'll be narrowing in on the university's response to four major topics academic dishonesty, mental health, international students, and housing. For a bit of a recap, the university announced on March 14th that spring quarter 2020 would be entirely remote. This stood in contrast to previous announcements that COVID would only shut down for a few weeks. And these rapid changes all came within a week of each other, while the county still had no cases of COVID. Isla Vista's first case of COVID occurred on March 30th, when the county's case count was at 88. Each new case in the county was considered big news at this point, with us at the Daily Nexus reporting every new increase. And while students sat on Zoom, many at home in their childhood bedrooms, the university experienced a sharp uptick in referrals for academic dishonesty, as reported by a campus-wide email sent in January by the Office of Student Conduct. To learn more about this trend and the university's response, we spoke to Gio Lucero, the 2021-2022 Student Advocate General and former Internal Deputy Chief of Staff for the Office of the Student Advocate. For a bit of context, the OSA office helps inform students of their rights throughout the hearing and trial process following a referral for academic dishonesty. My specific position is to educate and inform all students on their rights of students, all resources available to students, and educating and informing students on the university policies and procedures such as student conduct trials, judicial affairs, academic dishonesty, like with academic trials processes. So my job is to um, inform students of what these processes look like, what to expect, how they happen, and if necessary, serve as an advocate for them. My office as a whole provides services to these students on a confidential and free basis. They're very interpersonal, so very one-on-one. And these students oftentimes can provide advice for the students, such as prepping them for these hearings and trials, just being a source of help and listening to them. So somebody can choose like if you want to school, but that's something also we've done and continue to do and connecting students with resources. Gio said that a lack of communication between students and the Office of Student Conduct regarding the process of receiving a referral resulted in a great deal of confusion. Like imagine getting an email like as a first year, as a first year transfer, as a student who has never had to deal with this kind of thing before, especially with remote learning. Um, and being told you have been reported to the Office of Student Conduct and you'll have a hearing to see where your stance and enrollment as a student is. And so um, on top of that, like, all you know is that you have a trial coming up, but you have no idea what to expect. You have no idea who's going to be there. You have no idea, like, what to even argue, like, what information to have. One academic dishonesty charge that came up frequently, Gio said, was self-plagiarism, where students recycle language from their own previously submitted assignments. 
Gio said these charges for self-plagiarism were too harsh, especially in light of remote learning. I know that one of the biggest things that like, was highlighted from my experience was self-plagiarism. It was an issue that, one, like I said, many students didn't even know existed. A lot of um, students weren't even aware that that was part of like academic honesty. So that kind of helped spark like in my own mind, like something that I should be tackling this year as far as like letting students know that self-plagiarism is a form of academic honesty that this university recognizes. But even furthermore, it kind of also just made me question like how serious this kind of right, like form of dishonesty should be like taken into. Reflecting on the university's response to academic dishonesty, Gio said they wished a student body email was sent out earlier, fully outlining the process and informing them of their rights. It just kind of was frustrating to see that a lot of students were facing these consequences either without proper notice or again, um, without that proper like hearing and trial process that the university promised. I think the biggest thing that the OSA tried to focus on last year and certainly something that I'm focusing on this year is raising more awareness of the office and raising more awareness of the resources and the procedures happening um, on campus. I don't want to, again, like like the email that we got at the beginning of this year, I don't want to wait until this is a bigger problem. Say this is what this looks like and this is how it happens. I think, you know, students should be aware of this stuff, like as soon as we get into school and being constantly reminded, you know, it's easy to like, we take in a lot of information, um, especially in the beginning of the year when we have like first year, when we have transfer students. Um, and for ourselves, like coming back to campus, hopefully like in the fall, you know, we're going to be getting so much information, so many updates. So I think that it doesn't serve us or our campus community as a benefit to just be like, this is the one time presentation that we're having it. If you missed it, I'm sorry but our office is here when it happens to you and if you need it. I think it is our responsibility as the Office of the Student Advocate to continuously put in an effort, continuously put up these workshops or these informational um, graphics, whether it's on social media or sending like mass emails to the student body of like, that our office is a resource, this is what we can do, but also these are your rights as a student. These are the most common or major procedures that happen at the university, this is what it looks like, and this is how we can help you. One group that was particularly affected by the pandemic was international students, many of whom were forced to decide between their home outside the U.S. or staying inside the United States. And in July 2020, international students on M1 and F1 visas had to navigate the announcement from Immigration's Custom Enforcement, or ICE, that said international students who weren't attending their fall 2020 quarter in person would be barred from residing in the U.S. And while that policy was later reversed, it represented a long-running pattern of complicated travel restrictions for international students during the COVID-19 pandemic. International students were allowed to stay in the U.S. following the rescinding of that decision. But students who did choose to return to their home countries had to navigate newfound challenges like different time zones for classes. Those who did stay in the U.S. reported feelings of isolation and a sometimes hostile environment for international students. We spoke with international Chinese student and 2021 UCSB graduate, Tiani Huang, who spoke on the toll staying in the U.S. had on her mental health. Tiani also expressed concerns about the rise in hate crimes against East Asian people during the pandemic. A lot of them do not really happen like to face to face or anything. Just see some comments online that's pretty like makes you, makes you feel sad and um, you can read the news about how Asian communities being attacked because of pandemic and all the sentiments about 
from the the last U.S. president called Fulu, that kind of thing. If you read those news online and read comments talking about this, you will just feel sad. Tiani added that though navigating housing as an international student was a difficult process, the university did a good job helping students through providing resources such as the Miramar Food Pantry. While the university is preparing for an in-person fall quarter, challenges for international students are expected to continue into the upcoming 2021-22 school year, particularly surrounding student visas. We spoke with External Vice President for Statewide Affairs Esmeralda Quintero Cubion, or Esme, for more. For Indian international students, the concern is the ongoing COVID crisis and how that's impacting the reopening of U.S. embassies in India and actually being able to process these international student visas. Additionally, there's the issue in which there's not enough people to staff them at the moment because it is an ongoing COVID crisis, as well as the massive backlog in terms of the processing of student visas. So to the last but I was warned, they are able to process around 2000 visas a day. However, after over a year in the pandemic, it's you're obviously going to have a buildup. Esme spoke on former President Donald Trump's presidential proclamation 10043, which suspends the visas of Chinese students who had previously studied at Chinese universities that support Chinese military initiatives. President Joseph Biden has yet to reverse this policy. Esme said their office is working to assist international students through this process by partnering with the Office of International Students and Scholars. For our Chinese international students, it's mainly been the same crisis in regards to reopening embassies. Additionally, the presidential proclamation off the top of my head, in which it basically inhibits the process of actually allocating student visas to particularly Chinese mainland China's citizens. So that's kind of the problem at hand. Um, in terms of immediate like relief, so the best thing that could be done is for President Biden to rescind this presidential proclamation. That would ease the burden on especially uh, Chinese international students who make up the vast majority of our international student community. But also in terms of my office, the work that I've been doing is maintaining conversation with OISS, the center I, men I mentioned earlier, setting aside some of my budget, particularly to create and develop emergency grants for international students who may have trouble affording basic needs, as well as just uh, processing their visas, the fees that may come along with that. Additionally, because of the connection between my office and the Multicultural Center on campus, we are looking into potentially sponsoring additional entertainment and just enrichment programming for international community. That way, making sure that even though they may not be here in fall in person like the rest of us, at least they will have some form of community reconnecting them to our campus, even if they can't be here physically. We understand this is a lot of information to process, so let's take a short break. But remember, you're listening to episode two of Unmasking Isla Vista, a COVID-19 community archive. After the break, we'll discuss the university's response to mental health and housing during the pandemic. You're listening to KCSBFM 91.9 in Santa Barbara. Stay tuned. Hey everyone, I'm Yelena Teagle with KCSB News. And I'm Afrika Ayer with The Daily Nexus your hosts for next week's episode of Unmasking Isla Vista, a COVID-19 community archive. We hope you're enjoying this week's episode on university and students. 
Ashley and Sindhu are really holding it down this week. They sure are. Give me just a moment. Test one, two, test one, two. Is, is this thing on? Well, it's about to be. Because next week's episode is all about testing and vaccines. In episode three of Unmasking Isla Vista, we examine the efforts of UC Santa Barbara and the Santa Barbara Public Health Department in mitigating the spread of the coronavirus. From establishing testing stations in our communities to providing accessible vaccination sites for our community members, we revisit the very beginning of the pandemic, guiding you through its initial stages and assess where we are currently with interviews from UCSD Student Health Medical Director, Dr. Ali Javan-Bach, Santa Barbara County Public Health Director, Dr. Von Der Renoso, and Santa Barbara County Public Health Officer, Dr. Henning Ansorg. Episode three is sure to be insightful and informative. Be sure to tune in next week, same time, same place here on KCSB-FM 91.9 in Santa Barbara. If you're interested in full-length episodes and accompanying Daily Nexus articles, head to dailynexus.com slash unmasking dash Isla dash Vista. That's dailynexus.com slash unmasking dash Isla dash Vista. We will see you next week for episode three. Unmasking Isla Vista, testing and vaccines. Until then, be safe and take care. Welcome back. Before the break, we went over academic dishonesty and international students' experiences during the pandemic. Continuing along in our episode on university and students, we're moving on to the university's response to mental health needs. As we discussed last week, students' mental health was gravely impacted as they continued learning in isolated environments, many living under strenuous conditions. During the May 2021 UC Regents meeting, Director of Student Mental Health and Wellbeing Jeannie Kim reported that UC-wide, 41% of undergraduates experience stress, 31% experience anxiety, 24% experience depression, and 15% have considered suicide in the past year. To hear the perspective of a professor who tried to accommodate students' mental health needs, Ashley and I sat down with Professor Walid Afifi, a professor in the communication department. Professor Afifi was adamant that the number one thing students needed during the pandemic was support from professors, administrators, and peers alike. Increasingly, and especially during COVID, tried to take a humanistic approach to existing, first of all, and then certainly to being a professor while simultaneously maintaining uh, rigor, because I think that's really critical for everyone. But ultimately, students, everyone, we all need to feel supported. We all need to feel like someone that people care for us, um, that people are listening, that they see us as human beings, first and foremost, that we all have challenges and difficulties and that we're feel, we feel seen. And um, that we feel supported by the institution that we're going to school you know, to and paying money to and et cetera. So, my goal was sort of to make it so that students could learn the material that I'm teaching, but also that they feel supported in doing so. What that looked like with those goals in mind changed throughout this pandemic and always it's changing. Like I'm learning all the time as well as a professor, what that looks like, what that means. Professor Afifi also told us about a survey that he and Tamara Afifi, communication department chair, professor, and Walid Afifi's partner, recently conducted to investigate the pandemic's consequences on the population's mental health and well-being. When you see it really starkly, I think it, 
it um, is jarring in some ways is the extent to which socioeconomic status really impacted not only uncertainty, which is one of the main things we were looking at, right? So uh, the lowest socioeconomic status, the folks with the lowest income, um, their level of uncertainty before the pandemic was as high or higher than the folks with higher income during the pandemic, right? So there are communities who are living under tremendous uncertainty and stress and anxiety in their day-to-day -day lives. It's only when something as massive as the COVID pandemic hits that other uh, folks actually even reached that level that they were at before the pandemic even hit, right? So everyone was affected, but it depends on your, start, your starting point, right? If your starting point is super high and it goes higher, that gap is a much greater hit in some ways. Like you're barely surviving and then this thing falls on top of you and it really is, is devastating to you. If your beginning level of stress and uncertainty is low, you might be able to take that hit to the increased hit uh, a little better because you have the resources and, and you're not constantly you know, trying to manage it throughout your life. Depression levels were also um, similarly affected. So everyone's mental health took a big hit, um, but the percentages of folks who had indicators of mental distress, like that could be at a, point, at a point where they're diagnosed as having serious mental distress, mental disorder actually, reached astronomical levels in the lowest income groups and still really high levels. And we're talking like, I think it was 75% reached a beginning threshold for mental disorders uh, in the low income group and up to 40% in the high income group. So, I mean, that's hard, high, really high regardless. For students who were involved in a number of extracurriculars, isolation played a major toll on their feelings of community and belonging on campus. As someone who is known for her various commitments on and off campus, EVPSA, Esme Quintero Cubion, reflected feelings of burnout that I'm sure many students can relate to. I'm very tired. Um, my office has the most work over summer out of any of them, especially when it comes to like the tuition hike work. Like my office broke the news on the tuition hike across the UC system. We were the first people to talk about that. That is exhausting. Putting together UC-wide webinar is really educating our campus community on what they need to know, really doing lots of research, hiring 20 staff staffers for my office. I'm tired. This office can take anywhere from 10 to 20 hours a week on top of being a normal student taking summer courses and holding other positions and other jobs that I need to worry about. And yet another burden on mental health has been the issue of housing during the pandemic. Definitely. Whether students were stuck in leases or struggling to find them, the last thing we would categorize the housing market this past year as is stable. In August 2020, the university first limited fall quarter undergraduate housing to those with special circumstances being accommodated. Those who were allowed housing under this classification were only guardian scholars and unaccompanied houseless youth who were offered housing at the San Clemente Village's graduate apartments. A group that was especially hit by the adapting housing policies was university resident assistants who were told only a month before the beginning of fall quarter that their employment had been rescinded for the 2021 to 22 school year. As a result, the UCSB RA coalition demanded housing and benefits by creating a petition through change.org, which was signed by 941 individuals as of October 5th. The university then sent 23 RA offers for winter quarter 2021, though 40% of accepted applicants announced deferment of their appointment. For those that remained employed, they wondered how the pandemic would alter their roles as RAs. Some expressed a sense of fear regarding what their job would look like, as much of the duties carried out in the job require face-to-face -face contact, 
while others decided to end their contract altogether. Based on interviews conducted by the Daily Nexus, it seemed that the main sense of inconvenience and frustration stemmed from the fact that they were let go with such short notice to sort out any other job or living arrangements. This left some to scramble to make other job or housing arrangements. KCSB's Yelena Teagle spoke with Billy Jankowski, the Associate Director for Residential and Community Living from War. I think the, it kind of uh, assumes in some way that there was just this like stable packet of information that we were just pulling and choosing from and making sure that we we're able to make sure that students had it or that our RAs had the information or whatever else. And as I look at myself, um, you know, during the time I was communicating with some of our RAs and we did some things really well and we did some things that like I would do differently being able to go back. But I also feel like whatever we were communicating was with the best information that we had at the time. And it's just so challenging to know when as a society, we weren't 100% sure what was happening. And then trying to see how that that might replace into how that might impact our RAs as they were preparing to come to campus or something like that. For me, I I think we we did the best we could. I know the university did a really good job of trying to be as clear as it could with information that was just unclear and and, uh, uncertain. And that, that made it really challenging. But I, I think in, when I look at like my role and how we communicate with, with people and the, the students and the RAs that, that I was communicating with, um, I think one of the things that we ended up doing better as it kind of started to go on is really trying to, to say, here's when we're going to communicate with you next. And as we figured that, you know, as we start learning more, here's what we're going to communicate with you. So by this time, you'll hear from us next about like what's what's happening. And from my experience, you know, I just have to give a lot of credit to our students and to our RAs. So many people were absolutely just very understanding and thankful for the information that we were able to give them. To add, the staff at Residential and Community Living had to find new ways to build a sense of community among themselves and with the residents. You know, we're normally building community with people in person, being able to, you know, being able to gather, I think, is a huge piece of our work and being able to find a way for people to just develop relationships. You know, I mean, I think when we think about students living with us, they're meeting friends that they're going to have for, you know, a pretty long time. And as a former student at UCSB, some of the people I met my first or second year are still really good friends of mine, you know, and, and so we know the importance of that and being able to, to bring people together and being able to, to really build a sense of community where, where students feel like they belong. And it's, it is harder, much harder to do that when you're not being able to gather and being able to like have late night conversations and people are zoomed out from classes and everything else. So the last thing you wanna do is gather on Zoom one more time. It really pushed us and challenged us to figure out ways in which we could build community without being able to get people to gather really quickly, you know, all together in large groups. And so our staff did a really good job. I think with coming up with some really creative pieces. Like one of the programs we had done was to be able to have staff go and drop stuff at people's door, let them know that we'd be coming by, hey, we're going to drop some things off. And there might be like a little note or some little packaging that would go along with that to say, whether it was like something that was going on or a question for them to interact with kind of remotely or or whatnot. And I think that that, you know, trying to figure out ways that we could do that, that would really still make sense, I think really helped. Definitely wasn't the same in some ways of the ways in which we would have liked to have built community had the pandemic not happened, I think I think our community building would have been more effective and looked really different had there been no pandemic. And so it's it's really clear that 
as as creative of our staff was getting um you know it, it wasn't exactly the same and not exactly the way that, that we would want to design it by any stretch ahead of fall quarter 2021 which is scheduled to return to in-person learning the university plans to open housing at full capacity for the 2021-2022 school year. Priority has been given to incoming second year, first year, and transfer students who applied by the deadline and other groups like Regents and Promise Scholars. And as stated by Chancellor Yang in an update from April, vaccinations are key to resuming normal activities. A formal UC-wide vaccine mandate was announced on July 15th, which will be in effect for fall quarter. But unfortunately, this likely won't be the end of housing difficulties, as Esme noted regarding the ongoing housing crisis in our interview. If you talk to incoming first years, second years, or anyone who's relying on university-owned housing, everyone's on a wait list. Everyone is unsure of where they're going to be. And I, as someone who's even going to be like an incoming RA, I have so little information regarding housing. Uh, it leads me to believe that we are going to see an absolutely devastating crisis as it continues on into the year. Because not only do we have to accommodate one of the largest classes of incoming freshmen that we've ever had, on top of our second years that are also promised housing, on top of international students that are going to require housing once they arrive either in fall or winter, so an additional wave of residents that we're not used to, while IV is undergoing a shift in which less housing is becoming available as the population grows and there's not enough development to actually consider this. With housing, like almost every aspect of this pandemic, returning to a new normal for student life will be taken one month at a time. And we'll be covering it for our KCSB listeners and Daily Nexus readers every step of the way. Well, Ashley, it's been a pleasure reporting with you on university and students. You too, Sindhu. We covered a lot in today's episode. It's always surreal to think we've been in the midst of this thing for almost a year and a half now. Honestly, I can't wait to get back into the newsroom. We'll finally be working from across the courtyard. It sure beats all of these Zoom calls. It's going to be a great year. We'd like to thank our guests that were featured in today's episode, Gio Lucero, Tiani Huang, Esmeralda Quintero Kubion, Walid Fifi, and Billy Jankowski. And a gentle reminder to all of our listeners to head to dailynexus.com slash unmasking dash Isla dash Vista for full-length articles and archived episodes throughout the course of this series. That's dailynexus.com slash unmasking dash Isla dash Vista. You can catch last week's KCSB episode and Daily Nexus article on human struggle at dailynexus.com slash unmasking dash Isla dash Vista to receive our weekly newsletters on each topic as they're published. Head to kcsb.org, scroll down to the bottom of that page, and add your email address to our subscribers list. We'd like to give a special thanks to our dedicated reporters this week. Atmika Iyer, Asumi Shuda, Holly Rush, and Yulene Teagle. Thanks again to everyone for supporting KCSB and The Daily Nexus on our first collaborative project. Months of reporting and coordination have gone into this project, and we truly couldn't have done it without our dedicated listeners and readers supporting us through every step of the way. Remember, you've been listening to KCSB FM 91.9 in Santa Barbara. I'm Ashley Rush with KCSB News. And I'm Sindhu Anand Vale with The Daily Nexus. And thanks to the rest of our team, our Daily Nexus journalists, Africa Iyer, Asumi Shuda, Holly Rush, Catherine Swartz, KCSB journalists, Alexandra Goldberg, Daniel Wasias, Pia Ramos, Yulena Teagle, Jennifer Yoshikoshi, Daily Nexus videographers, Evan Caucasian, 
Juliana Zapatel, Daily Nexus artists and graphic creators, Hannah Apple, Luca Dispro, Daniela Gomez, Alex Rudel, Noel Chan, Natalie Sierrindo, Kelly Yan, KCSB artist, Madeline Pang Miller, Shirley Wong, and finally, our Daily Nexus photographers, Pia Ramos, Taiyun Yao. Our theme music is Foundations of Burgundy by Jawser. Again, the biggest thanks to you for listening. Be sure to tune in next week for an episode dedicated to testing and vaccines, featuring interviews with UCSB Medical Director Dr. Ali Javanbacht, County Public Health Director Dr. Vonda Reynoso, and others here on KCSBFM 91.9 in Santa Barbara. Take care, y'all. See you next week. Mm-hmm.